0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Mom Hour. I'm Sarah Powers, and I am flying solo without Megan because today is one of our very special monthly Voices interview episodes. Today I am talking with Dr. Erin Lanfier. She's a clinical child psychologist. She is also a professor at Arizona State University in the psychology department, and a therapist in private practice who sees kids and teens and young adults and their families for help with all kinds of different things. Now, if you saw the episode title today and thought maybe this was going to be a really serious conversation about you know getting help for kids who are facing super tough mental health issues or developmental issues, I want to help kind of broaden that a little bit for you. One of my goals for this conversation today was to expand our thinking around what it means to get support for a kid who's struggling a little bit or a lot or somewhere in between. So to use a different analogy, kind of a medical analogy, if your kid you know, has a really serious fall and has an open wound, you're going to immediately take them in to get treatment and probably stitches. You can tell right away that this is an urgent issue. If your kid falls off the monkey bars and is complaining their arm hurts, but there isn't like super obvious swelling or it doesn't look like it's super broken, um, you might be unsure and you might take them in just to get some more information, to get the x-ray to rule something out or to have a professional look at it. Um, I think it's really helpful to think about our kids' mental health and their you know, growing brain development and their emotions in this same way, where a child psychologist or a family therapist could really be someone to normalize or validate things you might be struggling with with your kid. It could be a professional opinion. Um, it could offer some tools for you if you're dealing with behavior issues. And it doesn't have to be the thing we do when the urgency or the emergency or the crisis feeling or the trauma feeling is right there in front of us. So- Um, That's a lot of what Dr. Aaron and I talk about today is when to know when it might be beneficial to see a therapist with your child or for your child. That with and for is another thing that I think is um, confusing to a lot of people, whether you're sending your kid into a room with somebody they've never met. And that feels really scary. And what Dr. Aaron kind of explains is the way that a family therapist can can talk to you about your kid for a while and then talk to your kid and then talk to the two of you together. And so there's all kinds of different ways that um, seeing a psychologist or a therapist um, can be maybe less intimidating than you think and maybe a more accessible and even welcome process than perhaps you might have thought. So a lot of what we talk about today really applies to all families going through behavior struggles and not just those who've you know, really identified a particular diagnosis or a more urgent mental health issue. We talk about kids as young as two and three, all the way up through teens. So I think this is going to be a great conversation. I'm really excited to have Dr. Aaron. I'm actually hoping to bring her back for future. So as you listen, if you have follow-up questions, I would love to hear those from you. You can always email us, hello at themomhour.com. Let us know what you think of today's conversation. And if there's anything you'd like to hear Dr. Aaron discuss on a future episode. I'd really love to have her back. Megan, the end of the school year and kickoff to summer is a busy time of the year for families, but we can all eat stress-free and hit our wellness goals with ready-to-eat meals from our sponsor, Factor.
1: Factor's delicious meals are never frozen and can be ready to eat in just two minutes. You can pick from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular choices like calorie smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Plus, they have more than 60 add-ons like breakfast, lunch, snacks, and beverages to keep you fueled all day long.
0: So our team was comparing notes recently on our favorite factory meals, and Katie loved the herb-crusted chicken with mashed cauliflower and toasted almond green beans. I loved that one, too. And get this, so did her little boy, Charlie. She heated it up for lunch one day and Charlie, who's three, ate almost all of the green beans. I mean, that's quite an endorsement, right?
1: I was going to say, what a parenting win. <laughs> and I get it, Charlie. Those green beans are crazy good. And if you really want to treat yourself, they even have meals with filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Listeners, head to factormeals.com slash momhour50 and use code momhour50 to get 50% off your first box Listeners, Our Place offers a 100-day trial with free shipping and returns, and we've got a great deal for you. Go to FromOurPlace.com and enter the code MOMHOUR at checkout to receive 10% off site wide. That's FromOurPlace.com, code MOMHOUR.
0: Hi, Dr. Aaron. Welcome to the Mom Hour.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: We have been trying to get this, uh, this going, this conversation for more than a year. So I am really excited for our listeners to hear from you and to be talking with you today. So thank you for making the time.
2: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'm really, I've been looking forward to it.
0: Awesome. Well, I would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners um, briefly, because I loved the way you told me that you wear, you wear multiple hats in the world of uh, family therapy and as a mom. So I'd love to just hear that in your own words.
2: Absolutely. So I actually, I feel really fortunate um, to wear those three hats that you mentioned. So I um, am a clinical child psychologist. And so a portion of my time I spend teaching at Arizona State University and I teach upper division psych classes, including abnormal, abnormal child, adolescent, clinical. So I get to think about the theories and teach my students and be engaged by them And everything related to clinical psychology. And then the other three days a week, I have a private practice where I see children and teens and young adults and their parents and families for therapy, consultation, evaluation. Um, And then sort of my main hat, the one I wear all (laughs) the time is as a mom, I have a 13 year old son. And, um, you know, just such a pleasure to be able to engage with him across all the different developmental stages that he has passed through and is approaching
0: and teenagers are kind of your specialty. Did I pick up on that, or is it really across all age? It's
2: groups? really across all. I think um an area that I'm sort of really dipping into is more what we call emergent adults, okay. and those are those kids who are sort of eighteen to twenty five ah. that are transitioning
0: that's so fascinating from, so yeah. megan Megan, my co-host has a twenty two and a twenty as well as some three younger kids, so that would be that she's going to be tuning into this as well.
2: Fantastic.
0: Okay. We're recording this in October, but one thing you brought up when we were chatting off the record a couple of weeks ago was that, um, the beginning of the school year is often a time when kids get referred to see a psychologist or, mm-hmm. um, where things come up, maybe in a parent teacher conference, or maybe just with start of the school adjustment and anxiety. And it's a common time where parents start to wonder if seeing a therapist or a psychologist is the right thing for their child. So I'd love to just open this up for a broad conversation about what are some of the things that happen that might prompt a parent to give you a call or wonder if they should be giving you a call? Is it just what they know in their gut? Is it a, something a teacher says? And and what are kind of the most common reasons someone might uh, think to call you?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think you you hit it on the head and saying sort of the parent's gut And I always say I am the expert on childhood, Mm -hmm. but you, parent, are the expert on your own child. And I think parents have a really sort of intuitive sense that something might be amiss for their child. Something may not be going according to how we, we typically think of development. Um, but some of the the common reasons are, like you said, adjustment. So we're getting back to school. We're getting back into our routines. Um, sort of the ease of summertime has drifted away Mm -hmm. and we're now faced with responsibilities and homework and schedules. And, um, it, it can become stressful for children as well as for families. So maybe stress or anxiety would be common reasons that during this time of year or throughout the year, I might receive a referral. Okay. Um, Parents also sort of reach out because maybe there's an academic concern. Mm -hmm. Maybe the transition back to school in reading, writing, or math hasn't been quite as smooth and easy as it was in the prior grade. And the child's facing a little bit more difficulty. Maybe at the parent-teacher conference, the teacher noted a little bit of maybe disruptive behavior Mm -hmm. or attention or concentration difficulties that are making it hard for the student in the classroom. And, you know, that concern was communicated to parents.
0: And what if I can jump in real quick? Sure. What this is so hard to know, but how how are parents to know whether this is like a wait and see for a month situation sure. or let's make the call today? I think it can be scary for parents to make that first call if they haven't, you know, been in therapy themselves or if it feels like this Big deal, capital B, capital D, big deal. Yeah. I'd love over the course of the next 45 minutes to hopefully bring that down a notch. But if it is a big deal in your mind, what are some things to ask yourself to know? Okay, this is a wait and see for the next few weeks, or no, it's time to call Dr. Aaron and just take the first step.
2: Exactly. Um, So, again, I think the thing to look at is how, using your words, how big of a deal is this? Is this just a sort of a small, narrow aspect of my child's life? Or am I seeing it start to affect a lot of areas of my child's life? So Mm -hmm. if it's sort of affecting their time at school Mm -hmm. and their time at home and their time with their friends, if it's starting to make them withdraw from things that they used to love to do or used to do sort of fairly easily, Mm -hmm. then I think it's time to go ahead and place that phone call. If you feel like it's still pretty narrow and you um, don't see it having a large effect, then maybe you can wait a little while and watch it. Mm -hmm. Or if you'd like to try some things on your own, you feel like you haven't used all of your resources or you yourself haven't devoted kind of effort and time and attention to addressing this, Mm -hmm. then maybe you want to wait a few weeks, put that effort in and see what comes out before placing the phone
0: call. I love that. I love that. There's no There's no like obviously litmus test that's perfect. Um, But I love what you said about it. crossing into multiple areas of life or major changes is what I'm, Correct. what I'm hearing you say. I, I have a couple of kids who are, uh, their anxiousness comes out in different ways. Um, and I think for me, it's, if I have a kid who, for example, doesn't want to go to school in the morning or cries or kind of complains, and it's a, a power struggle in the morning, if that kid mm-hmm. is coming home happy at the mm-hmm. end of the day from school, Mm -hmm. then my, my indicators kind of like, well, let's see this out a little. If that same kid was having also crying at night, the night before and coming home stressed and exhausted, that would feel like I'm not seeing the, the kind of natural ebb and flow. I'm seeing it, um, crossover into all areas. So that's kind of areas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I was going to ask, is there an age where this, um, I would imagine parents probably aren't calling you for preschool aged i wouldn't think but i don't know is there an age where you start to see more um more referrals just because the child is older and maybe able to respond to the work that you would do or do you have a minimum age
2: those are actually really great questions so um providers do this a little bit differently i don't have a minimum age however i also don't necessarily bring the child into the office until they're at least 4 or 5 okay some people who do more non-directive play therapy okay. might bring in a preschooler. Okay, um, But for me, if a parent of a preschool-aged child is going to call, even a toddler, mm-hmm. I just do parent consultation. Okay, So we just talk a little bit about the concerns that they're experiencing or the stressful transitions of maybe having a two- or three-year-old who's coming into their own voice <laughs> and really loves that word no, yeah. and that's becoming a bit of a power struggle. but. In general, we do tend to see more referrals of school-age children. Okay, so that kind of after five-year-old age.
0: Okay, that's really helpful. I wish I had known about that middle parent consultation ground when I had four and five-year-olds. That was mm-hmm. a really kindergarten, especially was a really tough transition year for two of my kids, and um, I think I really could have benefited from that, even if they were able to kind of weather weather most of the storms without needing a an, an office appointment. So I think that's so helpful to know that that's um one of the things that you offer and i i would assume you're not the only one that that's a kind of a middle Definitely.
2: level. no and i think a lot of times what we think of is that you have to go see a psychologist or counselor when something is wrong mm. and and for me one of the best times to go is when before something is wrong mm-hmm. so you're sort of saying gosh i'm really struggling i thought i really had this down as a toddler and now they're they're a little bit more independent and this sort of parenting transition for me of of this new age level is is a bit tricky, yeah. So let me go in and get some tools or tips or tricks to be more successful as a parent and help my child kind of negotiate this new age more effectively.
0: I just hope that we're we're coming into a phase of um, mental health understanding where that will be as normal as like getting your teeth cleaned or getting a flu exactly. shot or other types of preventive care. But I think we just have a lot of stigma to <laughs> unravel, you know, from the still, past. Yeah. Yes, absolutely.
2: Yeah. There still is sort of stigma or uncertainty concern Mm -hmm. for yourself as the parent, as well as for your child as to reaching out to a counselor or psychologist and, and taking that first step. Um, You know, all I can say is that the tide is changing. Mm -hmm. It is a little bit more normative. Um, And one of the things that I just truly treasure is that uh, one of my families that I worked with, the child gave me the best label. They called me an idea doctor. I love that. And it just kind of minimized the sort of importance of going to see this professional. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is you're coming and getting ideas.
0: I love that. It that was idea, so special. Doctor. And that was, yes. he came up with that on his own or that was all his? on
2: his own. And it's just been something I've held on to for years.
0: I love that. I have also heard of, um, a coach for, we have a coach for our sports and a coach yeah. for our emotions. That's another one I've heard from another parent. And I thought Absolutely. that was, cool. that was a, a little bit of an older child though, who kind of understood athletics and sports and training and coaching. And so exactly. we have a coach for our sports and we have a coach for our emotions. Which
2: I, I really love. like that as well.
0: You can, you can tuck that one away. Um, well, I'd love for you to put on your clinical hat for a few minutes. And sure. um, I want to go a little deeper into anxiety because it's something that Megan and I get a lot of listener questions about. And of course, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a broad label and I'm sure it has a clinical definition, but it also has our kind of colloquial Understanding of children and anxiety, and what I've learned over the years, just having kids with anxiety, is that it comes out in very different ways. It doesn't always look a- like a child who is afraid of the dark or yes. has test anxiety or social anxiety. I actually, have one child with anxiety who has zero social anxiety, zero test taking anxiety, like it really none, mm-hmm. like none of the big f- three or four. Right. Um, and, and his comes out in uh, inflexibility, rigidity. Mm-hmm. And um, when he was younger, more outbursts and anger. So that's that's I'm not the clinician, but that's what I've learned over the years. I'd yes. love for you to speak to maybe like a, f- you know, four, three, four to school age age range of what parents might look for um, that are signs of anxiety. And then again, kind of parse out what's what's nor- typical and and what might benefit from seeing somebody? Because we just get this question over and over again. How do I know? My child's really afraid of this or acting like this. How do I know if this is something I need to seek treatment for?
2: Definitely, that's a great question. Um, and I wish I could give you a very clear-cut answer, but the answer <laughs> is that it lies within the individual. Okay. So some kids, as you mentioned, are going to be really irritable mm-hmm. if they have anxiety. Other kids are going to look that sort of typical fearful or hesitant or reluctant to engage. Mm -hmm. Um, Those might be kids who would cry or cling Mm -hmm. when they feel nervous or presented with a situation that makes them uncomfortable. Other children are going to tantrum Mm -hmm. because they don't have the vocabulary to express their apprehension or worry or concern. And so it just manifests as a tantrum and looks like they have a disruptive behavior challenge, Mm -hmm. As opposed to the underlying challenge, which is truly anxiety. Other children are going to look as though they can't concentrate, they can't pay attention, that they're daydreaming. Mm. And what we find with those kids is that they're not daydreaming about everything under the sun. Mm. They're actually hyper focusing on the thing that is causing them to be stressed or
0: anxious, like ruminating.
2: Exactly. And they can't think about or focus on or concentrate the teacher's lesson or you're asking them to clean their room. They can't think about it because their mind is so stuck. And wow. that sort that's of, that's
0: an interesting one that I hadn't really even thought of. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, other kids are going to start to withdraw. So you may see them pull away from their friends. You may see them not want to go to birthday parties, um, and do those things that we would normally think they would find as fun mm-hmm. because they're feeling stressed. So sleepovers might be one that you mm-hmm. start to see them withdraw from. Other children um, at the same time are going to not withdraw, but you're going to find that they have a difficult time with emotion regulation. Mm -hmm. So they'll engage in whatever activity it is or whatever situation causes them to feel anxious, but then they will have just almost a rebound after Mm. the activity because they've held it together for so long that when you finally get them home, they just kind of lose it.
0: Wow. I have one of those too. Okay. Keep going. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So those are kind of some of the main ways. And when we really start to see concern might be if your child starts to what we call regress. Okay. So if they've been able to do many things independently, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you feel like, wow, my child's 10, but I feel like I'm parenting a seven or eight year old again. Mm -hmm. Um, they've they've kind of regressed a little bit in some of their independence or autonomy, mm-hmm. and that might be cause for concern.
0: Okay, I really like that. That's something that I think parents can, because uh, they know their own child. So yes. it's it's like on a on a spectrum with your, the individual that you actually know and love, and not just not from a book. So I love that. Right. Um, something else that I think I had a misconception about about anxiety a few years ago was that the label. Of uh, a child with anxiety or a teenager or an adult with anxiety was sort of this lifelong mantle that meant you know mm-hmm. therapy forever, medication maybe kind mm-hmm. of like you either had it or you didn't um right. and I think for my own self, i've revised that to think of it as something that we need tools to deal with, and those tools might mean therapy and or medication at some points, but but likely that's not like you don't go from zero to that for the rest of your life. Like that's not how it works. So, um, I don't know, maybe you can talk a little bit about the tools that you, some sample tools that you might give a family who had a child with anxiety, who came to see you and what that, what that treatment might look like. And I know it's very hard because we're talking in big generalities here, but maybe to, uh, undo people like me who had that misconception that this is now like a big thing for the rest of your life.
2: Yeah, definitely. So um you're right in saying that one of the things that happens is that we face different sort of milestones or challenges in our life and sometimes when we face those we may have anxious responding that may just be time limited or mm-hmm. it may mean that we are sort of a, a little bit of an anxious person underneath and that we'll get past this moment of anxiety, but it doesn't necessarily mean that another one may not pop up at another transition. Right. So people approach it differently. It could be either one and done sometimes, or it could be a little bit of a of a lifelong, um, you know, sort of not challenge per se, but, but something that the person needs to recognize that their mm-hmm. typical response is, is going to be anxious. Mm-hmm. In which case we do provide skills and they vary across the board from, sort of basic physiological regulation. Mm -hmm. So anxiety comes with a lot of, you know, maybe stomach aches or headaches or just kind of feeling crummy Mm -hmm. for kids. And so we might help those kids with deep breathing exercises or exercises to sort of calm themselves at a biological level like progressive muscle relaxation. And usually when I teach those strategies to the child, I also teach it to the parents Mm -hmm. because you as mom or dad are the person right there sort of helping the child through that anxious period. Sometimes we also teach sort of what we call self-efficacy. And this is basically a big idea that means that the child has a sense that they can manage or control or take care of themselves in certain situations. Mm -hmm. And when we feel like we have that ability to take care of ourselves, it reduces anxiety. So basically age-appropriate independent skills might be something that we help teach the child and facilitate within them. So they don't have to feel so anxious in every setting or situation. I
0: love that. And we, it's something we've talked about and done interviews about, and are both Megan and I are, are passionate about that. I've never really connected it as almost like, um, a protective shield around anxiety though. we've talked about it in terms of feeling, you know, feeling independent and raising independent kids and, and all that's good about that. And I've never really thought about it as connected to anxiety. That's really powerful.
2: Absolutely. Because if you know that you have the capability of being self-efficacious and taking care of yourself and advocating for yourself, um, going up to ask the attendant at a restaurant for an extra packet of ketchup yes. doesn't present anxiety to you. Yes. So it's, it's a really neat construct that is related to something that we might do therapeutically. Um, the other sort of big thing that we do is changing what we call maladaptive cognitions. And this basically is the idea that A child will often start worrying about something very small, like a spelling test um, or even one word on a spelling test. And then that blossoms into the whole test. And then that blossoms into language Mm -hmm. arts. And then that blossoms into the whole school day. And then that blossoms into school. And so if we can take that, we call it catastrophizing or generalizing, making something super small, really big if we can shrink it back down to size cognitively, mm-hmm. then we can just tackle that one word on the spelling test. And then it's not so big of a thing that we have to face. Mm-hmm. So that was another strategy that we use is to helping shift some of those ways of thinking or cognitions that that make our anxiety a little bit worse.
0: Well, I love everything you just said, because it, they all are things that um, once parents were educated and maybe spent some sessions with you and their child, they're things that. We can all practice in our own homes, whether we have anxious children or not, whether we're experiencing anxiety ourselves or not. And it's not, um, it's something you could do with siblings. It's not, it's the, the the, particularly anxious child doesn't necessarily need to be singled out if we're all doing deep breathing exercises or we're all, you know, getting self efficacy as we learn to take care of ourselves. Do you know what I mean? It's exactly it's, the whole family um, can benefit. So that was so, so helpful. Oh, good. good. Um, anything else about, I'm thinking especially of our youngest anxious kids. Are there particular mm-hmm. ages that you um, hear from parents where fears, I we're recording this before Halloween, it'll air after yes. Halloween, but I do remember, I remember that the Halloween related fears with my preschoolers, preschoolers seem to have a lot of, you know, monster and bad guy fears. We hear a yes. lot about that. Um, is anything different about what you just said? Um, for those little guys? Uh, is that, or maybe just normalize that phase for us so that we don't have so many parents calling you when it's, when it truly is just kind of that normal developmental phase.
2: And I think you, you just said it perfectly. That is normative. So we find that although the number of anxieties or worries may actually increase with age, the number of fears decreases. Oh, interesting. So it is interesting. So when we're little, we have no conceptualization of how the world works. Right. Um, so, for example, a preschooler, um, especially, I always say that some of those big kind of commercial toilets, they yes. may actually think that they're going to get flushed down because there's no sort of um, experience base for them that, no, I actually won't fit down the toilet. Mm-hmm. I won't get flushed down. It is completely normative for them to fear Halloween, mm-hmm. for them to fear the dark, for mm-hmm. them to fear monsters, for them to fear bad guys, for them to fear even Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. You would be surprised the number of of little ones I have who are concerned about someone being able to enter their home.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, so those are very typical fears. Again, if you find that the fears get in the way of the child being able to be a child, mm-hmm. being able to do the things at age two or three or four, that other kids their same age are doing, then you might have a little bit more sort of concern.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, but yeah.
2: if the fears are very narrow and they don't impact many areas of your kid's life, then then it's a normative transition phase.
0: I think that's so important. And um, one of the I think one of the things Megan and I do on this podcast, because our kids are older now, is we're able to use hindsight to Mm -hmm. look back and be like, oh, remember, and we both have funny stories about the things our kids were afraid of at those ages. But when you're going through it, and you're having bedtime struggles every night because of monster fears, it feels like it's never going to end. So I think that was a really helpful clarification. It's almost like as they get older, the anxieties shift to real world experiences, like tests and social things and sleepovers. um, But those like the things that make us smile like toilets and my sister was afraid of doorknobs when she was little. Like there's all these funny, you know, funny little things um, that that is that is more typical. So interesting.
2: It is typical. And the, the only thing that I might sort of add to that is as you normalize it for your your child, just sort of also don't totally buy into their fears. So Mm -hmm. my my son, when he was little, used to be afraid of going out into the garage to get something that he wanted. Mm -hmm. And I would say, okay, well, take the dog with you because the dog will let you know if there's anything to be worried about. Mm-hmm. So rather than me accompanying him, mm-hmm. which would decrease that idea of efficacy, mm-hmm. I would say, yes, you need a little help and support. This mm-hmm. is a normative period of time to be worried about going into the dark garage, mm-hmm. but do something that you can do independently to help support yourself.
0: I love that. I love that. I I had another therapist tell me one time to just um see if you can get them to write at the edge of comfortable and uncomfortable instead of mm-hmm. saying you're going to go out in the garage and get it and it's going to be fine. I promise, you know, and sort of push them in. Um, But if there's a way where they feel a little bit nervous and yet when they're through it, feel like they accomplished something. So finding that and for every child and every fear, that's so different, but it might, it might look like I'm going to stay with you in your room after we turn the lights off for, you know, one song, and then I'm going to be right outside the door. It's all of these like sort of baby steps. And that's what I'm hearing you say, not completely accommodate them, but also not push them off the deep end.
2: Exactly. Very much so. And and give them time limited. So one of the, a child that I was recently working with was a little bit afraid of the dark. They had seen something on TV that, that caused them to feel nervous about Mm -hmm. going to bed. And so we said, I, I bet that if you put a very, they have those little micro mini lights now Mm -hmm. that are sort of like.
0: Yes. Like fairy lights kind of. Exactly.
2: Very much. I said, I think we might need a string of fairy lights for about two weeks. And I bet after the end of that two weeks, you probably won't need those fairy lights anymore. I love that. And so you just give them a little bit of a a boost, Uh but not a crutch.
0: I love that. A boost, not a crutch.
1: to grow into healthy adults. Okay. I'm
0: back with Dr. Aaron. um, And I think we've made a great case for why it can be a wonderful thing to have a child psychologist or a family therapist um, in in your back pocket as a Mm -hmm. tool for kids, either with anxiety or other issues going on. But one of the things is that when you've never done something, it feels overwhelming as a parent and as a child. And I think one of the things I'd love to do is get really specific about what it's like to, to make that first phone call mm-hmm. and then to set up an appointment and what to expect. So I'm going to start us just chronologically sure. um, with where might you, where, wh- how do you know who to call? Is there, um, are there designations like you are, you know, a doctor, you have a doctorate in child psychology. Are there, Hi. I know there are marriage and family therapists. Is, is there a way to know who to call or is it just like, let's just find somebody and start there so we can get over the hump?
2: Right. No, those are great questions. Um, So I think that you should start at a place of comfort for you. Okay. And that's generally for most parents, it's their pediatrician. Okay. And go to your child's pediatrician. You don't even have to necessarily make an appointment, but the office is going to have a list of referrals for mental health care. Okay. People that your pediatrician has already worked with, trusts. Um, has a relationship with in case there ever needs to be back and forth between your child's health care provider and a mental health care provider. Okay. So I always say start with your pediatrician. You can also start if you trust your school psychologist or school counselor. Okay. They may be a great starting point and also have a list of referrals that, that you might value in your community. Okay. Um, so those are two really good starting points. In addition to your, your, your insurance coverage.
0: Yeah. That was, that was where I was going next. So go for it.
2: (laughs) Sure. So some families need, um, sort of that, that copay or financial assistance in order to be able to see a therapist or counselor. So you would call your insurance provider and see who is paneled with them. Okay. And that paneled person has a relationship with the insurance and would be able to give you a reduced rate, um, for your services. Okay. So those would be three places that I would, I would begin with. Okay. Um, Once you've narrowed it down, I would say, make some phone calls.
0: Yeah. And that's where I was going next too. So let's talk about that first phone call. Who's likely to answer the phone and what, like something as someone who likes to prepare, I'm sure you can tell about me. I, I get hung up on things like, am I going to need, is this going to be a long conversation? Am I going to need to talk about my kid or is this just setting up an appointment? Like what, what to expect on that first phone call?
2: Totally varies. So if you were to call my office, for example, most of the time families would leave a message on the answering service, and you should know that the answering service is completely confidential. So you can leave there any length or detail of message that you like, um, because it's only going to be heard by the provider or their sort of approved proxy. Maybe they have a receptionist who might listen to some of the answering service messages. Um, So for my practice, you leave your message, I phone you back directly, because I'm an independent practice. If you were to call a group practice, for example, you would probably get a receptionist and that person would potentially do an intake. They might ask your name, your child's age, date of birth, the reason that you're calling. They might gather information about your insurance if the practice accepts insurance. Um, And then they would connect you to a provider. So you're either going to go straight to the person who you will be seeing in the office Mm -hmm. or you may go through the intake coordinator.
0: And at that point, are you making an appointment for um, a first first session or are you still sort of in this paperwork intake process?
2: So you are probably making an appointment for your first session and depending upon how the practice works. um, So in my practice, for example, I always see the parent or parents first. And the reason I do this is because children don't really like to answer questions. Yeah. And so if I can pepper the parent with questions for about an hour and get to know their child through the parent's perspective of concerns, then I don't have to pepper the child with questions. I can say to the child when I meet them, um, gosh, you know, I was talking to mom and dad and they said this, that, and the other. What do you think about that? Uh And we're already off and running as opposed to having to kind of interrogate them.
0: Well, if you will. I love that because I think uh, a misconception is that this other grown up is going to talk to my kid and I don't even know how much access or how much I'll be able to be involved. So sure. really you're starting with the parent. Would that be the same for a 12 or 13 year old? Would it be the same for a 16 or 17 year old or does it depend?
2: It really depends. So, but, so 12 or 13, yes, I tend to start with the parent as well. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe less so for a 17 year old, but Again, my viewpoint is that you are the expert on your own child. Mm -hmm. So I would like to meet the parents first so that I can ask the questions, but also so that they can evaluate me. Mm -hmm. And I think as a parent myself, I think I know who my child is going to click or connect with. Mm -hmm. And if I don't get that great vibe from a particular person, I may continue shopping before I even schedule the appointment for my child.
0: Well, that's a great point because one of the things I uh, wanted to ask about was, what kind of commitment is expected, or mm-hmm. uh, i get let me ask this two ways: One, I could see parents uh being concerned about if this isn't a good fit. do I have to keep going for a certain amount of time? That's one question, but also from the provider' standpoint I'm curious if if there is a length of time that you feel like is makes something you know worth it, like maybe the first couple of sessions we're just getting to know each other, but let's try this for three months or six months. Is there kind of a is there a, an ideal window of time from your perspective?
2: Not necessarily. Okay. So the, the initial evaluation for most providers is somewhere between um, two sessions, okay. maybe three sessions. So from my, my perspective, it's meet with the parents, meet with the parents and child or child independently, depending upon the child's age. Okay. And then we move directly into sort of skills, strategies, kind of tackling whatever the issue is at hand. What I say for children is that they do better on a once-weekly basis initially. Mm -hmm. They need to have consistency. And initially, you as the provider are kind of helping the child and the family to kind of be accountable Mm -hmm. in terms of practicing these new strategies. And then once the the family started to run with it a little bit, my viewpoint is I back off on the sessions as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So we may go from once every week for be five, six weeks okay. down to once every other week, as soon as we can. Okay. And then we go down to once every three weeks, as soon as we can. Um, and that way the child is out living their life, practicing the skills in the real world, as opposed to spending time in the office with me.
0: I really like that. Um, and I want to ask a big one or a big one in my mind and how, how are parents to communicate what they're doing to a child. And let's let's use um, a, a young school age child, let's say six, seven, eight, nine years old mm-hmm. um, that we're going to be going to see Dr. Aaron. What are some specific language skills to use around what we're doing, why we're doing this and what the child can expect?
2: Absolutely. So always prepare your child. Um, It does not go well when you spring this on your child, when you just pick them up from school and say, hey, we're going to the psychologist. So you want to let them know that you've had a chance to meet this person and describe the person, describe the office, describe the reason that you're going. You might say something like, you know, I've noticed that it's been a little bit hard for you to go on play dates and have mom drop you off. And so I figured that together we would go and we would talk to Dr. Aaron and get some ideas about how to help you have a little bit more fun when you're going to be dropped off on a play date. What do you think about that?
0: Oh, I just love the way you just said that. And then what if the child says, I hate that idea or starts to cry or
2: is resistant? Yeah, then you can validate that feeling. Mm -hmm. It is tough to talk about things that, that we're struggling with. I understand that. I'm going to be right there I've already talked with her and I need to go as as your mom or as your dad and learn some ideas of how to be more helpful to you. So we will give it a try and see what we think.
0: Okay. I really like It's
2: no different than when you have to take your, ti- your child for an immunization mm-hmm. or some other kind of yucky
0: medical procedure mm-hmm.
2: that they can't get out of because right. this is equally as important to their development and well-being.
0: Right. Right. Um, And I could see older children saying, I'm fine. I don't need help. I'm not Mm -hmm. having a hard time. Mm -hmm. Um, So you then would just continue to validate and yet hold firm.
2: You would. You would say, this is not really an option because I'm noticing that things aren't going as smoothly as both of us would like for them to go. Or certainly that I, as your parent, would like for them to go. I'm going to ask you to go see what this doctor has to say. And if after a couple sessions, you really feel that very strongly, we can evaluate how we're going to approach it going forward.
0: Okay. I really like that. I wanted to push toward those, <laughs> the more mm-hmm. resistant ones yes. as well, because um, it is hard. You, you want it to be collaborative and, um, you know, go in willingly, but I'm sure, especially as kids get older. Yeah. that there are kids who say, well, you're, you're wrong, mom. I'm, I'm fine. I don't need this.
2: Well, and actually I would love for a parent to walk into the office with their child who has their arms crossed and uh-huh. the hood up on their hoodie uh-huh. and say, we had a really hard time getting here. So-and-so didn't think that they needed to come and then trust the professional to do their job Yeah, to either um, understand why was it that you didn't want to come? You, it seems like you have a really different opinion on this issue than your parent does. I uh-huh. want to understand your viewpoint, uh-huh. And before you know it, your child is talking usually.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love all of that. It's just so great. Um, so we talked a little bit about the comfort of having parents have access to you beforehand, which I think is so wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about as you move through sessions, what kind mm-hmm. of um what kind of dialogue is happening? without the child. So now you've met with the parents and the parents and the child, the child on their own. Are you able True. to give feedback, um, you know, throughout the process of here's where he's doing really well, or, I mean, you don't really have confidentiality issues when it's a child, right? It's different than.
2: Well, that, that, so you do have confidentiality oh, do. Okay. issues. Yep. So what most psychologists adhere to is the idea that whoever is in the office with them has confidentiality with them. Okay. And so what I explain to all the families who come to see me is that very fact. And I say, hey, listen, um, you know, child, Johnny, if you're comfortable, why don't we kick mom and dad out to the waiting room Uh and you and I can chat together a little bit. Now, clearly the parent has understood that this is part of the process before I say that. Mm -hmm. So during that initial parent session, we go over confidentiality that sometimes for children to have an outside perspective, someone that they think is really just in their corner that they can open up to, they need to know that I'm not going to tell mom and dad everything. Okay. And so there is a level of confidentiality and a level of trust between the parent, the child, and the provider, such that if in fact your child is in danger of hurting themselves, being hurt, hurting somebody else, that's a deal breaker to confidentiality. Mm-hmm. And the clinician usually tells the child first, you know, gosh, that's, that's one that's kind of tough. We need to bring mom and dad on board for that one Mm -hmm. because it's their job to help keep you safe. Mm -hmm. Less than that, general feedback is provided to parents. We talked a lot about friends today. We talked a lot about how difficult it is to focus at school. We talked about some of the anxieties um, that your child is experiencing today. You get general feedback as a parent, not Mm -hmm. necessarily specific feedback. Okay. Um, However, if in fact there's a tool or strategy that you've taught the child, I generally have the parent learn it, like I said, at the same time. Yeah, I was,
0: I was wondering about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So if it's more supportive, what we might call supportive psychotherapy, mm-hmm. then you provide the general feedback. If we're really targeting, targeting a specific treatment issue, parents are actively involved from my perspective. Okay.
0: And might that look like some time one-on-one with the child in your office and then bring the parent in to talk through, you know, strategies or or a tool that you're sending home or something like that? Yep. Like like half and half kind of? Absolutely.
2: And sometimes it's half and half. Sometimes it's a third, third, third. So okay. I might do everyone all together, child by themselves, parent by themselves. Mm,
0: mm-hmm. okay. And I
2: say when you come to the office, be prepared to play musical chairs because I'm not exactly <laughs> sure who is going to be in with me and for what period of time during the session, we use it as the way the family needs it.
0: Okay. That's really, that's so, uh, you describe a pl- process that's much more dynamic and fluid than I think a lot of people imagine, um, and much more just adaptable to the situation, which I think is comforting. Um, I'm curious about the younger end of the patients that you mm-hmm. see. So those, the like you said, the school age, but little guys, um, is there, is there, play involved or fun like what are some ways you engage a younger child that maybe are different from what we picture when we picture traditional Absolutely. therapy.
2: So children are not sort of designed to sit and talk to you, right, for an exactly. Hour. <laughs> that's
0: what I'm that's what I'm getting yeah. at.
2: <laughs> they're just they're just not. And so um I have in my office a certain set of toys. Again, it's not, you're not coming to see the person to play. So play is simply a tool that we use to engage in the process of work that has to be done. Mm -hmm. So we may play a game just to distract ourselves. And while we're talking, um, we're playing that game, or maybe we're coloring, or maybe we're using a whiteboard to draw out what it is that we're trying to understand. So there is active engagement um, with our younger children during the session. If you have a very young child, maybe a four or five, maybe even a Mm six-year-old, I normally suggest that maybe grandma or somebody comes with you, maybe a nanny or or other caregiver, because the child is probably not going to be able to sit in for an hour session.
0: I see what you're saying. So So,
2: have them come in for maybe as long as they can attend. Sometimes it's as short as 15 minutes. Sometimes it's half an hour or even 45 minutes. And then they can go sit in the waiting room with the care provider that you brought with you.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, we are close to wrapping up, but I'm curious, is there anything else? We've talked a lot about these kind of stigmas or or worries. Are there other patterns you see in your practice um, where you have an opportunity now to kind of coach moms to think about this differently? And this is kind of just an open ended question. Any other um, stigmas or hang ups you see that you that you would like to kind of undo for moms?
2: I think the biggest one is that as a parent, your child does not come with a handbook. Mm -hmm. There is just no handbook for how to do this correctly. And so if you can work collaboratively in the same way that you do with your child's pediatrician, with a mental health provider, and develop a relationship, whether it's when your child's young or when you need them, that relationship is going to be there across time. I have had some families that I began seeing their children in fourth and fifth grade And I have been able to help facilitate the transition from high school into college. Mm -hmm. And so it's just really neat to have that relationship that you can fall back on Mm -hmm. if things get bumpy.
0: Yeah. No. so
2: I would just, I think that's probably my biggest point of advice.
0: I I love that. And hopefully um, we have moms listening from all over the country. Is there... Um, we talked about starting with insurance, starting with your pediatrician. Is there anything else to look for, uh, you know, letters at the end of your name or a particular affiliation? I know sometimes people like to like to do that. Um, is there anything else when we've got people all over the country that gives a kind of language of what to sure. look for?
2: Um, so if you're looking for someone who's at the Doctoral level, if you want to be able to say, Gosh, we're going to go see Dr. So and so, you'd be looking for a PhD or a PsyD. Both of those individuals would be um, a counseling, sorry, a clinical or counseling psychologist. They okay. would be a doctor, and they've gone through, you know, at a minimum six years of school in order to be able to do this beyond college. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I always say, I went to twenty third or twenty fourth grade um, is what I tell kids. Um, but you might also see a, a social worker, a licensed okay. clinical social worker, or a master's of social work. You may also end up seeing um, a licensed professional counselor. Uh-huh. Anyone who has experience with children who you feel that you connect with, mm-hmm. who fits the the sort of demands of your family in terms of price point, mm-hmm. location, hours of availability, sort of the philosophy that they have in working with children and families is going to be a help. There's not a right or a wrong choice. I
0: I love what you said so much. I'm going to kind of repeat it, which is that anyone, regardless of the letters after their name, who fits with, and you said things like your schedule, your location, like Megan and I always come down to like, this has to work for you as a mom and as a family. And if the best, if, you know, the person with the fanciest degree is an hour and a half away it's going to be it's really hard to work to make that happen. So I love, mm-hmm. I love that it might be, might be the counselor down the street and it might be, that might be a great place to start. And if it's a great fit, great, but I, that was helpful also to hear about the different Good. designations and, and that the work inside sessions m- may look, you know, similar or different, but it's not so much about the letters after Exactly. Their name. Okay. Exactly. Um, Well, Dr. Aaron, in our podcast, we always say that we're going to link up anything we discussed today in, excuse me, in the show notes at themomhour.com. If in talking, if you think of any articles or resources or links, you don't have to mention them now, but our listeners know they can go to themomhour.com. And if you and I think of anything, we will link up um, additional resources there. And for those in the greater Phoenix area, I hope we can link up your practice as well. Um, so people can find you if they want to, you are in, what part of the Phoenix area are you in? So
2: my practice is in the North Scottsdale area.
0: Okay. Um, I used to live there as we've discussed, but not anymore. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Um, and I, my hope and listeners, you'll have to let us know what you think, but my hope is that we can bring you back on occasion. And just like we went a little bit into anxiety today. Um, do that same thing just periodically here on the mom hour with other topics, because I don't feel like I'm done talking to you. So. Oh,
2: well, I appreciate it. It would be my pleasure. It's always a joy to share information with moms and help this parenting journey be a little bit smoother. So thank you for having
0: me. We appreciate it so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Just as a reminder, you can access all of our past episodes as well as the resources we discussed in today's show at themomhour.com. This was Voices episode 42, and Megan and I will be back in your feed this Sunday with a More Than Mom episode and again next Tuesday with one of our regular episodes. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon. Guess what, Megan? Over 10,000 teens are already using our sponsor, Erica, to help them unplug.